think normally people say that integral yoga is an integration of different kinds of yoga that have been practiced over the years. So karma yoga, which focuses on selfless service, uh, jnana yoga, which is a kind of Vedantic self-inquiry, um, and then there's bhakti yoga, which is more of a devotional kind of yoga, and raja yoga, which, at least as we use it here, tends to refer to the yoga sutras of Patanjali. And sometimes people also throw in hatha yoga and japa yoga that refers to the physical postures and the repetition of a mantra as kind of separate practices on their own. So integral means that you're integrating over those, but I think it's integral in another sense as well, um, which is that our teacher, Swami Satchidananda, took a very large lineage and uh, body of, of thought and practice that has developed over a number of centuries and managed to kind of condense that into something that is culturally a little more portable. And so uh, in that sense, it's maybe a, there's a kind of integration over culture as well that's, that's also taking place. Is it the aspect truth as one path so many? Well, truth is one paths are many, I think, maybe refers... Actually, that's a, a Vedic quote, by the way. How is it? Uh, well, truth is one seer, see it in many ways, I think, is how it would be more literally translated. But uh, that itself is an old sentiment, but I, I think it's highly appropriate here because integral yoga does present a, a, a number of different paths for yoga, as well as... A, Obviously, this institution has a very ecumenical focus as well on different religions around the world. I see. So there's a little bit of historical, a little bit of something, innovation. Swami Sashidananda seemed to be very innovative in this approach to bring it to the West and to make it stick around for so long and thrive right now. It's quite impressive. And could you attribute to his the success to Truth is One, Path so many approach to include Swami Satchidananda was indeed an innovator. Uh, and sometimes he could be very ecumenical, and sometimes he just drew on one path. Uh, he, I think he had a, a profoundly keen ability to sort of know his audience and kind of um, speak to them from the perspective that they were ready to hear, I guess. And in fact, in some ways, um, Swami Satchidananda was very, very orthodox. At every turn, if you look at the prayers that we say, the practices that we do, as ecumenical as he was obviously interested in, in making this community, um, they all seem to come from one particular lineage. So he, he could have thrown in a whole bunch of different things. Uh, I, I think he was being, you know, faithful to what he himself was taught in that lineage at the same time. It's a, a very interesting combination. So you brought up lineage. What is it? What is the lineage in yoga philosophy? How deep in history does it go? What kind of uh, philosophy that, does it transmit? Well, let's start with just the concept of lineage. I mean, today it wouldn't be unusual for somebody maybe around my age to say, I've been studying yoga long enough, I've studied with a few different teachers, and I liked this practice from this teacher and this practice from this other teacher, and I put them all together, and now I will found my own school of integrally hot moksha yoga, or you know, whatever I decide to call it, uh, and that's it. I mean, the, basically the, the lineage, so to speak, uh, extends back no further than my imagination because I, I founded this school. Um, this community is very different. That lineage extends back several centuries. Uh, at the very least, I think you could say to the 8th century, to a, a great saint named Adi Shankaracharya, who founded the monastic lineage that you are studying, Brother Arjavana. Um, but in any case, the, the emphasis wasn't so much on kind of repackaging and branding as it was carrying on what you were taught. 
passing on not only the teachings that you've received, but the spark from that human teacher that animates those teachings. And so uh, there was actually a lot of conservative uh, impetus in the, in the transmission of these lineages. You must respect the masters who came before you. And so you can see that in what our guru taught. Swami Shivananda uh, you know, passes on those same prayers to his students who are now teaching them in India. Yet there seemed like Swami Sachidananda brought in some innovation. So how would you uh, evaluate that? Is it something that ha was happening throughout the history? Would every master bring their own sort of flavor to it, add something? Or was it strictly conservative? Well, I think the innovation in this case really came from a as I said before, a, a desire to kind of make it culturally a little more portable. So there aren't pictures of Hindu deities hanging all over the place here. Although in principle, there could be. It wouldn't be unusual for there to be. Uh, and yet they're not. Um, there's no requirement that people who come here think of themselves as Hindu. So that, that was a very deliberate choice on Swami Satchidananda's part. Uh, in other respects, I think the, the innovation might possibly extend to the ecumenism that was so important in the yoga ecumenical services and the other interfaith work that Swami Satchidananda did. I think that that work, I believe, was very astutely added to serve almost as a kind of handbrake for the orthodoxy that we were given as our own lineage. If there's an importance to make sure that we understand that our way is a very sacred way. It's not the only way. We have to respect the others as well. That's beautiful. So that was innovative. It seems like a, you know, truth is one, paths are many, um, but I, I can only share with you my truth. I'm going to share with you my truth, but I'm acknowledging that there, this is one of, of many different perspectives and we're going to respect all of them, as you're saying. Well, Swami Satchidananda used to say, dig one hole and dig it deep. That's how you get to water when you're dr drilling a well. So there are many places you can drill the well, but that doesn't mean you should be drilling all over the field. Just pick one. And stick with it. Yeah. And that seems like right now, the lack of focus, and there's so many different lineages, so many different teachings presented, but now we have it all around us. So that's, I think, he got it right on this idea of drilling one well in one place because of the, the time, the context changed so much and that's big need right now. Well, <clears throat> the statement drill one hole and drill it deep doesn't really give you a lot of guidance in and of itself as to where you should be drilling that hole. In a sense, it just puts the pressure on to commit yourself to one of a, of a multiplicity of different ways. So I think it, it is understandable for beginning students, especially if they come from families where there isn't you know, a particular tradition of yoga to grow up in, uh, but they would you know, look around a little bit and find something that appeals to them. How about the, the challenge um, that I find at least of, of kind of dealing with the promises that my past self has made and commitments? Mm. Um, for example, you know, you, maybe when you're younger, you, you make a vow to, you know, to be a hard worker, mm. right? And then if you're just digging that well of being a hard worker your whole life and you're committed to that, um, I guess my question is, where does like reassessment come into place? Because maybe you've grown a little bit and then you get to a point and you say, okay, I want to be a hard worker, but I also don't want to burn myself out. And self-care is important, for example. So now I want to kind of balance that. So this, I want to drill deep and be totally committed and, and see what that has to offer. But I also don't want to kind of cut off my, um, my interpretations from in this very moment of what I'm seeing and not be kind of present with how I'm feeling right now, today. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, 
I don't think I've ever heard a teacher advocate for working hard beyond your capacities. Um, in that particular example, I think it stands to reason that moderation would be part of even being a hard worker because that's what allows you to work hard for a long period of time. The, the whipsawing between you know, very hard work beyond your capacities and burnout in the end gets less done than if you're just able to keep a, a steady and, and regular course in your actions. But as to the topic of reassessment in general, I think what I was once told by a monk here was that if you're climbing a ladder and you feel yourself slip, we're on ladders now, not wells. <laughs> you're climbing a ladder and you feel yourself slip, the first thing you do is hold on. So that doesn't mean quit. It doesn't mean keep trying to climb. Just hold on. Make sure you're stable. Check everything that you have your footing. And that's also a good time to check your perspective. Make sure you're seeing clearly. And once everything is okay and you're not losing further ground, then reassess and ask yourself whether this is you know, maybe the, the right thing to be doing or at least at the right pace. Even I think the, the right time to jump in to a commitment and say, okay, this is my ladder or this is my well, and to not necessarily rush it and feel I need to make this decision now um, as opposed to kind of being, you know, in the flow of, of the universe or whatever you want to call it. And it comes to you and it says, okay, this is it. I got it. This is my well. This is my ladder. It feels right. My heart is telling me that this is the one for me. The opportunities do seem to present themselves that way on the spiritual path. They find you. I agree. But I do think it's important for people who do have a spiritual inclination to do something about it at a fairly young age. <laughs> and what would you say that is? To do what about it? Well, the first thing they can do is look at the context within which they're growing up. I think a lot of times people today think of themselves as islands that can elect either to reject or accept traditions they were raised with. I mean, the you receive a certain amount of cultural programming from your parents that I think has to be acknowledged and respected. And it's probably you know, worthwhile to take a look at the faith tradition you were raised with, for example, um, to look at how your family observes a religion, see how that goes for you. So it's like assessment of the soil where you can then dig the well first. Ass assessment of the soil where you sprouted. You where you sprouted. Yeah. What kind of seed? And, yeah. But some people that you know weren't from a particularly religious family, or they maybe had a, a mentor, someone you know other than a family member or a distant family member that that was very influential on their thinking at an early age. I mean, those those kinds of formative experiences count as well. It seems to me what I'm hearing is to kind of assess the environment and understand the environment that you find yourself to be in. But maybe not only in childhood, maybe um, it's wise to have a constant vigilance uh, for acknowledging what your environment is and where you find yourself, because that maybe allows you to dig deeper, climb higher, the more that you're aware of, of, of where it is that you are. Well, sooner or later on the spiritual path, I think, everyone comes to the realization that it involves listening more than doing. So you have to be attuned to, to the commands that you're receiving and act accordingly, having mean, received those. What do you mean by the commands you're receiving? Like from your conditioning, from your environment or? Just when the mind is still, when you're meditating after the morning, Satana that the two of you do. In that state, you know, take advantage of it. You worked that hard to get there. When the mind is that calm, um, you get a lot of clarity about what you should be doing, I think. Oh yeah. That is familiar for that's the main obstacle for meditating for me because when I 
quiet the mind a little bit, then all those great insights and thoughts come up and mm -hmm. they're so interesting. So I can't keep up meditating, you know, I, I want to think about that. Mm -hmm. That's one of the challenges. Well, the ones you can't ignore are the ones you should act on first. <laughs> then I'll never meditate. <laughs> Just because I have... I was... Keep meditating. Yeah. <laughs> and if the same idea keeps coming when you meditate, then maybe you're on something. Feels like it's just infinite well of ideas. All that conditioning just brings up something, and everything seems so important. That doesn't sound like a quiet mind, maybe. Okay, You're busted. <laughs> <laughs> but did, uh, for me too, it seems that there's there's a truth to this. That the the quieter that the mind gets, the it's not necessarily the quantity of things that that come in, mm. but the quality of things that come in seems to be lifted. Do you, do you find this to be the case if you observe that? I think you're putting your finger on probably the, the single largest existential crisis that every young person of faith, regardless of the faith, really has in this day and age, which is what do I do with my life and how do I observe that path, that calling? In yoga, there is a concept of something, the Sanskrit word is Swadharma. It's the Dharma for the individual. It's your calling. Mm -hmm. Maybe you, you could, if you had to give it a translation. So I don't think we've ever had a society that allows as much freedom as we have today for people to assign labels and identities to themselves. Uh, it's really something. And not only that, but in this society, we expect other people to kind of acknowledge the, those self-identifications. Is it a luck or a curse? Uh, it's both. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nice to have that kind of freedom. You're, you don't have all the age appropriateness and gender appropriateness and you know, things based on the family you come from being kind of thrust upon you. But at the same time, it leaves you just an enormous, almost limitless range of, you know, possible identities to choose. So again, the spiritual way, the yogic way of doing that is number one, to pray for guidance as to what that Swadharma is. And number two, which is equally important, pray for the strength to follow it. Hmm. So I didn't know, so prayer and yoga, is it, what kind of prayer are you talking about? Is it just asking a question? The prayer that you feel most comfortable doing. For, for people involved in bhakti yoga, probably there's a form of God or a, a conception of God that they feel inclined to call to. And it's prayer in the sense of, you know, calling out for help. For people who are more committed to a path like Raja Yoga, it probably has a, a lot more mentation involved with it and, and individual effort in order to control the mind, pacify the thoughts, and allow that Swadharma to emerge once the mind begins to reflect the self more accurately. So I'd like to go back to the digging the well. Mm. So what kind of water in this well you know what which teachings are being transmitted how can you like in our case you mean in our case yeah, in our lineage so you, what you're getting is a combination of uh, yoga from the yoga sutras uh, and a particular school of Vedanta called Advaita which refers to the non-dualism of the school that we're all one in Brahman so there are two two schools well, in the traditional uh, enumeration of the six orthodox schools of Hinduism, yes, they would figure as two of them. Um, but I think through history, these two have been synthesized for a very, very long time. So I found evidence of it, you know, going back to um, probably about the ninth century. And within the southern um, Advaita Parampara tradition, there's evidence of it, um, maybe from the, at least the late 17th century. 
Mm-hmm. It's been around. So what, if you first encounter these teachings, what would you recommend to do? The uh, teachings of integral yoga. Yeah. Read them, maybe try them a little bit, and see how they sit with you. So before committing to dig anything, just... Give it a try. I mean, that's the nice thing about integral yoga, actually. It is a well-rounded discipline. So it's got a little something there that appeals to different kinds of mentalities. It's, I, I think, a, a good way to sort of sample the different, uh, the different practices that make up a traditional Indian school of, of religious philosophy. Yeah. And since it's an integral yoga and synthesis of different branches and approaches, is it something like you pick what works for you and leave the rest, or you ideally practice a little bit of everything? Like, where's the, where can you come and decide, oh, that's, that's what I'm going to do? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't recommend, assuming you have committed to this path, I wouldn't recommend leaving any one of them. That doesn't sound like a, really a very good idea. But um, I think you'll find that if you go far enough with any of them, they kind of bring the others along in their wake. I don't think I've ever felt forced to choose between bhakti yoga and raja yoga or jnana yoga and karma yoga. It doesn't work that way. They all have this capacity to promote a sort of transcendent state. And as you get closer to that state, then I think you start to see a convergence between them. How about this idea of like picking sides or extremes? So this tendency to say, okay, I'm a bhakti yoga yogi or I'm a yana yogi. Um, or even what you were mentioning before about uh, you know following tradition or in this world today, there's more freedom to decide what labels you want to associate with yourself than, than ever before. Mm. Um, so it seems like there's like the tendency to either put yourself on one pole, which is you know tradition and I'm following what is right. And then the other side, which says, I'm deciding everything for myself. Um, Where's the meeting in the middle type of thing, which, which kind of acknowledges the tradition and also says, as you know, you're mentioning, you know, decide for yourself what sits with you, mm. that sort of filtering process too. Um, or just have you thought at all about this idea, this tendency to, to label ourselves even as I'm this, I'm that, I stand here, I stand there, as opposed to this kind of, is this maybe what integral yoga is or, or part of the path to like, be free of labels and just, I don't even understand where, where I stand. Well, I think my own approach is to just let other people think of the labels for you. Mm. It's not really in my business, Mm. but as for a choice between um, sticking to a tradition and thinking of things on your own, I mean, if, you think you're involved with a tradition that militates against individual thought or initiative or that requires an extremist point of view. Um, I, I don't know, that wouldn't be for me. So there's a, there's a, a kind of old um, metaphor that comes from the study of the three pramanas in yoga. This comes fairly early on in book one, where it talks about what the valid sources of evidence are. And one pramana is uh, pratyaksha, which is what what we see with our own eyes or directly experience with our own senses. A second one is called anumana, which is what we're capable of inferring without direct perception or based on direct perception. And then, the third one is called Agama, as it's presented in the Yoga Sutras. There are only three. In some other schools, there are more. But Agama is the third and final one in, in yoga, and it refers to a kind of scriptural authority, or the authority of a, of a, a teacher, perhaps. So uh, people would say in India a long time ago that these three paths are just like the paths that a warrior uses. So there's the warrior 
who fights on foot and the warrior who fights on horse. And the warrior, it, it was India, so there were warriors who fought on elephants. Right? So um, the warrior on foot is like Pratyaksha. And the warrior on the horse is like Anumana. And the warrior on the elephant is like Agama. And in this period of time, there was a code of conduct for warriors. A warrior on the elephant couldn't just go and trample foot soldiers. Mm. It, it wasn't considered a fair fight. And it's kind of like, you know, in Clint Eastwood movies when he you know, was a cowboy in those films from uh, the 60s and 70s, right? It, you know, he, you, you weren't supposed to shoot somebody in the back, mm. you know, even if they were the villain. It, it always had to be, a, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, showdown or something like that, but between two people facing each other. So the, there was that sense of a, of a righteous battle. So among spiritual aspirants, there need to, needs to be this kind of code of conduct too. The agamas can't come in and just tell you to shut your senses and your power of inference down. Mm. It's not a fair fight. Because mm. you're sitting on an elephant of tradition. You're on the elephant. <laughs> then I'm thinking about the ashram, because we are located in the ashram and it seems mm. like that's the place where so transmission of tradition is happening. Mm. Right? So could you among other places? Among other places. So what's the role and purpose of the ashram? What is it? Because it's a new thing for Western society, relatively. Well, yeah. I mean, there are other traditions that have um, uh, kibbutz and these kinds of intentional communities. Um, ashram. I mean, it's a it's a nice word actually. It comes from the root in Sanskrit, shram, which means you try very hard. So uh, that's what ashram is for. It's a place to go to intensify your study and immerse yourself in a particular set of teachings. It's also the place where you practice those teachings. So ashram sometimes is used even to refer to people at different stages in their lives. So uh, a brahmachari, for example, is in an ashram where they should be students. They shouldn't get involved with you know, romantic relationships or with lots of distractions, they should focus on their studies and try to improve their minds. And then you move on to Grahastha Ashram where you get married and have children and so forth. And the path you're preparing for is called Sannyasa Ashram where you uh, become a monk, a renunciate. So um, that counts as Ashram too. But in the case of a physical location, it's basically a place to immerse yourself in the teachings of a tradition. And because of the ecumenism that uh, comes with this particular school, uh, this also is a very ecumenical ashram. There are people here from all over the world, and they come here with all sorts of different faith backgrounds, many of them still practicing in those faiths. So it's kind of an interesting place to meet fellow aspirants too. So how is it, so you think it's possible to bring every tradition together and have have them practice their own traditions without having any conflict? Do you think it's possible to have that unity? Swami Satchidananda, I think, very much had the hope that Yogaville would emerge as that sort of community. So it's a... An example to the world of what a spiritual community can be so with that kind of global vision. But let's say some people meditate quietly and some chant out loud, how is mm. that going to work together? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at that point, I think you need to set aside different times for the uh, meditation hall. And of course, here, you know, in the tradition we were taught, uh, everybody is silent. And other people seem to respect that. I don't recall anyone deliberately disrupting anyone else with chanting. It seems that in order to make agreements, you have to believe that an agreement is possible to be made. Yeah, I suppose you do. <laughs> right, and then you could find a way out or mm. compromise. You were speaking about non-dualism. Yeah. Um, and so again, I think just for, I don't know, someone living in, in the modern age too, a yoga teacher perhaps, you know, 
there's an importance to you know the diversity again you know ecumenical um, mm -hmm. path is all about you know the diversity the diversity of uh, you know many different sages and, and, and teachers and and just humanity and the variety of species on the earth there's clearly diversity to all, uh, all to everything to all matter lots of diversity at the same time it does feel like everything is connected you know or many people have this discovery that we're yeah. a part of each other so that balance between the uniqueness of the individual or the piece of matter that you are but then also the connection that you feel to everything else was well, one such that used to talk about unity through diversity what that means is that there is diversity on one level. Maybe what a, an Adwaitan would call Vyabharika Satya, this kind of worldly level of truth. So unity doesn't mean negating the diverse forms, but still there's this other level, the Paramarthika Satya, the absolute truth. In which everything is one? How, how do you explain mm. what, what that means? I'm not sure I could explain it much more than you just did. <laughs> it's a pretty profound realization. What the Vedantic teachers would say, like traditional commentators, <laughs> is that when a child plays with a horse made of wood, it sees a horse. And when an adult plays with a, a, horse, a horse made of wood, uh, it sees the horse, but it also sees, he also sees it's a block of wood. You don't lose the, the ability to see the horse just because you know it's, it's a block of wood. Mm -hmm. So I like that a lot. I think that maybe gives me a little bit of a glimpse into what it must be like to, to kind of perceive those different levels of truth. The, the levels, I think, is, it feels really true to me. That there's different levels, or you could maybe even call it ways of, of being. Mm -hmm. As you go through like a cycle in the day and you know, the mood changes, my reality is that you know these things fluctuate a lot more frequently mm -hmm. uh, than we tend to acknowledge. Um, so somehow, uh, you know, it's the yogic path in a way, um, acknowledging that all of the this fluctuation, all these different levels will happen, and kind of being comfortable in each one. So you can move between the levels um, and accept yourself at whatever level you happen to be at. Mm. Well, those different vicissitudes that pull the mind in, around are generally regarded in yoga philosophy as either obstacles or afflictions. They get technical terms like this that don't really put them in a very positive light, I guess. Um, but they become weakened through your practice, whatever your spiritual practice is. Uh, the end result should be that you're not affected as much by those. So we still have physical forms. We still eat food. If we eat bad food, maybe that puts us in a bad mood. I mean, those kind of, they're weekly, maybe still a little bit there, but still... Uh, the, the spiritual practices make us stronger so that we're able to, to kind of remain more constant through those. And what about the spiritual practice of kind of acknowledging them even allows for more of the consistency, like being in touch with the, the reality that, that there, mm -hmm. there's this movement, somehow do, that process of doing that then creates more consistency than there would be if maybe you're running away and trying to label yourself, I'm in this certain place, or I'm not fluctuating, or anything like that. Well, the way that yoga helps with, with maintaining constancy through those vicissitudes would be in cultivating awareness, in fact. But it's, you know, it, ultimately it's mind controlling mind. So when the, when the mind starts to get a little bit bothered by something, this helps you kind of diffuse that. There's something interesting, we, we spoke about this before, acknowledging obstacles versus just observing them. Because when you acknowledge, you're sort of assigning a label that has certain connotations and weight. Mm. And by observing, you're sort of not doing it, but is it... What do you think about this sort of, uh, these two approaches? Well, 
um, there was a teacher here who once mentioned in a class that if you think about it, what's the point in enumerating the five different vrittis that are presented at the beginning of book one in the Yoga Sutra, right? If we're going to eliminate all of them anyway, why, why give labels? And the answer that seems to be given in this approach is that we're not creating a landfill full of vrittis. This is more like a German recycling program of vrittis. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Europe, but uh, when I lived in Germany, the, the waste bins were massive, huge, because there, you had one place for aluminium cans and one place for paper and one place for compost. The, the trash had to be sorted before it was thrown away. So that it strikes me as kind of an interesting, uh, uh, almost a, a paradox, really, that, that we should have to do that before getting rid of all of them. And yet that's part of the path. So it's in a way like a reflection, right? The, the sorting process. Maybe just so that you have a, a kind of conceptual framework to put those vicissitudes into as you're starting to attenuate them. Which key to use, right? Or what... You know, Pratipaksha Bhava, and then what opposite to choose? Perhaps. I don't know. But that's, that's part of the system. It seems to me that what that is really is acceptance. Uh, or that's the role, acceptance of the, the situation. Um, and then once I accept that I have, okay, that this is labeled this and this is labeled that, now I can deposit them all and organize them. But the first aspect, so you're talking about the self, right? That if we're caught in what's better, aluminum or plastic, then you can't really see the reality. You can't be the distributor of both of them anymore. Mm. But once you have the, the basically losing bias, even of the self. And so it's just, okay, I'm just accepting the self for what it is and what's going on here. And then it's almost like objectifying. Your, yourself in a way, or losing the ego, however the you mind, want to call it. Maybe. The mind. Objectifying the mind. Yeah. Yes. And then now, now I can just, again, without getting caught in who I am or what others think about me, now I can, I can kind of move a little bit towards areas of maybe improvement would be the logical thing. Well, you, you see things as they are and then work with them. You know, a lot of this is, it, I think it's very subconscious meditating. It's not that kind of deliberate, you know, sort of hankering down and, you know, chasing a thought around your mind. The, the, the discipline, the effort comes in very regular meditation, staying with the practice. So. Effort towards steadiness of the mind. Effort towards steadiness of the mind, very good, yeah. So is this the purpose of the ashram? It's like a place where you show this, you know, mm -hmm. trying hard, that's the effort. Try hard. That's the effort we're supposed to do, make here? Well, I mean, there are people who come here just to kind of check out what integral yoga is all about. Uh, there are people who come here for an you know, extended period of practice to just kind of enjoy the, the, the solitude and the countryside while they're doing it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like all intentional communities, it's, it's got a little of everything in it. But what's the main intention? Is there one? Living a spiritual life. So, in any shape or form? Any shape or form. It pervades your life. If you start thinking to yourself, I'm going to go to the ashram to emphasize my spiritual life, whereas at work I have to emphasize my career, and at home, I deal with, you know, my family life and compartmentalize life like that. I, I think personally that that's going to lead to a lot of confusion. You've got one life, live it. So this place helps you spiritualize that one life. And then when you leave, you take some of that with you where you go. So what... There are some integral yoga teachers are watching and I'm wondering what advice could you give them? 
something on their spiritual path that you found useful for your for yourself. Hmm. I feel an enormous debt of gratitude for being able to call myself an integral yoga teacher. I'm I'm very fortunate to be a part of that lineage and the transmission of it as a teacher. So I think focusing on the value of that alone is probably enough to sustain any yoga teacher. So thinking about the positive, the value of gratitude? Just the, uh, the inspiration of being a part of a lineage that goes back that long and has inspired that many people. What would the world be like a few hundred years later if there were no more teachers to pass that on? It's unthinkable. So it's not just, you know, for our own sake. It's, it's something we're, we're doing for others. It's an act of service. I think that's probably the main teaching I got from Intrigue Yoga, that it's about service. Yeah. For some reason, when I thought about yoga before, it was about my spiritual progress or journey but what it boils down to is service. Well, young people do need to think about themselves maybe a little bit more at the outset, just to kind of get the ball rolling and figure out, you know, what kind of life they want to lead for themselves. But I don't know. I mean, I, <clears throat> maybe, I think by the time you're in your early 50s, like I am, um, it's really very natural to start thinking of what comes after this life. What kind of legacy will you leave behind? And according to yoga, integral yoga teachings, what comes after this life? Hmm. What comes after this life is not all that clear, but integral yoga will hopefully still be here. Many people talk about, you know, like in the Yoga Sutras, there are mentions of future lives when the soul retakes, it takes another birth. But the reincarnation aspect of it, I, I don't think is hugely consequential for a sadhak, for a practitioner. Uh, you know, what matters is kind of making the most out of this one. Yeah. It seems like that's the tendency of the mind to get into those ideas of reincarnation and mm, all yeah. that. A lot of interesting spiritual <clears throat> journeys concepts. into past lives. Yeah. And, yeah. But you saying the main focus is this life, not to worry about mm. that too much. Just do practical things here and now. Uh, practical things now to to advance with a vision towards the long term. Yeah. Do you ever think that because human beings have such a capacity? Uh, to think and to imagine uh, that we um, misunderstand that capacity as being limitless. So we don't acknowledge the limitations of our knowing necessarily. We think we can know all these answers to different things and we can know because we can know so much, we think that that's limitless. It seems to me maybe there's some value in acknowledging the limits of our knowing and saying, well, there's certain things that I, and, and maybe this is the, the path of, of self-surrender, where you surrender and you say, I can't know everything, so therefore I, I need to have faith and I just need to trust. Hmm. Well, there's an old saying that those who see it don't say it, and those who say it don't see it. So I think what that probably meant was that there's a limit to our use of language in describing the infinite and by extension a, a limit to the way we can deliberately think about it. So what can we know or express with those two different things? What can we know or express? Well, I don't know. According <laughs> to your teachings, what's the, our potential? Is there anything written about that? I think the most you can say about um, 
human potential is that approaching a, something greater than yourself with an attitude of service gives you an opportunity to realize something about that greater thing. Mm. So I think humility will go a long way on the spiritual path. I wouldn't get too hung up about what you know your mind or someone else's mind is abstractly capable of. It'll all work out. Just be constant in your practice. Okay, I'm just concerning concerned about what should I, you know, try to conceptualize or what should I just let go of, in terms of philosophy, because there's a lot, there's mm. a lot of different ideas and philosophies, and where do I draw a line and say it's just not something I need to look into. I guess, and if we're talking about kind of book reading of philosophy, and is that sort of the yeah. intent? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess for me, it's always been most productive to kind of approach those texts with with specific goals. So there can be sort of you know reading that you do at night of you know one sutra an evening or something like that. that that's fine. But then with a specific question in mind to go into the text with an attempt to answer that one question, to me always got me thinking a lot more constructively about the ideas and how they connect. Well, for instance, I question what's the purpose of the soul? Why are purpose we purpose of of the soul, of the soul of life. Yeah. Like why are we here? What are we doing? Who we are, all those questions. Is there any validity in them? Well, they're all related. The reason you're here is to realize who you are. So that tackles two of them right there. If you can just do that one thing. And how do you do that? Regular sadhana. Follow the spiritual path. And sadhana could be any one of those branches and approaches, like an integral yoga, let's say integral yoga sadhana, or is there something specific that integral yogis do? Uh, I think all of them lead towards that goal. Even the physical postures. The mind needs, needs a, the body to just relax and kind of not bother it for a while in order to be able to meditate. So, what is it? How many times a week do I need to do Hatha Yoga to realize my true self? <laughs> <laughs> I want a number. You want a number, yeah. How long does it take? It takes as long as it takes. That's what teachers here typically say. It's hard to say. It's different for everybody. How about the love and joy in the sadhana as a practice? So mm. the difference in, in, in maybe accepting both of these, you know, some days you don't really feel like doing it. It seems more like a task, but you do it anyway. And I'm not committed to it. Mm. And then other days it's, ah, oh, just, I'm loved it. I wouldn't want to be doing anything else as opposed to what I'm doing right now. Well, I suppose there are days you can do it for one reason and days you can do it for another. It seems like consistency. This is something that came up before, and yeah, a, that's important. That's probably the biggest struggle. Long, so the sutras say a long time without break and in all earnestness. What's the obstacle to consistency? Why do you think most people set a practice and end up stopping or not following through? Mm. What draws the attention away? Well, I'm not sure there's a single one, but I hear a lot of people who have been doing this. I mean, typically when people begin practicing yoga, it's like, wow, I, <laughs> where has this been my whole life? You know, and they really get into it. Uh, and then it's, you know, with the advanced practitioners, They've been doing it long enough that they are sustained by some advances that they can feel that it kind of gets them through it. But there's this sort of middle gap, right, where it's really an act of faith, I think. And expectation of results or uh, preconceptions about how this should go are, I don't know if they're the single source of problems with consistency, but. I imagine they're a major source of problems for a lot of people. But... You spoke about appreciation 
of, of just your recommendation was to appreciate that you're even a part of this lineage or they found integral yoga, right? Do any of the spiritual teachings talk about this element of, of even like gratitude, awe, appreciation um, as wow. a practice itself? I mean, the, the one that comes to mind right now is a, a verse from the Bhagavad Gita that says there are four kinds of aspirants who approach the Lord. Um, one kind is in pain, and they seek relief from the pain. Another kind is curious, and they just they want to know what all of this is about. Who's that on the altar? What are all of you people doing? And they want to just know more. Um, the third is people who are desirous of wealth or some kind of material gain. So, you know, pray to God for a million dollars or, you know, that your children find good spouses to marry or things like that. Uh, but then the fourth one are those who simply know. They know their duty. So... That's like an ashram in a nutshell. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, I would say these, this final group uh, comes the closest. They, once you appreciate the context and, and understand the value of this, it's not a matter of, you know, well, I don't feel like it today. It's a duty to carry this on. Can you force appreciation or can you fake it? Can you fake the gratitude? What do you think? Well, you know, certainly there are days in every practitioner's life where they just say, I don't want to do this, and I'm going to do it anyway. So, if that's what you mean by force it, then I guess so. Well, can you, like, create a thought that would create a feeling of gratitude in you? I think um, studying the the teachings and the lineage, uh, the lives of the people who have come before you in transmitting it, <clears throat> there's plenty of there to be plenty there to be inspired about. I don't think you need a whole lot of trickery in order to get the gratitude. Mm -hmm.